we also know that the, the interest in online learning has really been peaked as a result of the pandemic. And I believe that the institutions who position online education with their commitment to access and invest in professional development as equity infrastructure will be the institutions that set themselves apart from others. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder. My co-host Brad Garner isn't with us today. This is going to be part two of a conversation with Michelle Pekansky-Brock. It's great to have you back, Michelle. Thank you, Tiffany. Happy to be here. And for those that didn't have an opportunity to listen in to part one, please go back and catch that part one episode, like and share with your friends, and then join us for part two. But without further ado, we're going to jump right back into our conversation with Michelle on humanizing STEM and the liquid syllabus. So here we go. I know when the dashboards were first shared, some faculty thought, oh, this is great because now I have my answers or now I'm just a button away from letting advising take care of some of these behind the scenes things. But no, there still is a significant faculty role and opportunity outside of the dashboards and advising and it can make all the difference. So, well, I know that in addition to inclusive teaching, there's two other related, but also different topics that really spoke to my team when we were looking into having you on the podcast. And one of them is on humanizing STEM in particular. So could you share with us about your humanizing online STEM project that you've been leading in California? This is one that frames professional development as equity infrastructure. What is meant by that? And what about the project excites you the most? It's been amazing to lead this project with an amazing team. It's not just me. There's lots of people invested in this, but I think I want to frame it within California and particularly in the California community college system where we serve 1.8 million students, very diverse student group. Two out of three of our students are not white and the largest racial ethnic group are our Latino students, about 40% of them. And so again, this kind of loops back to my comments earlier about being self-aware of our own identities because most of the faculty who teach are white, don't look like our students. And so in our system, we have a commitment to closing equity gaps, racial and ethnic equity gaps. And that's where this project is framed in. And our funder, the California Education Learning Lab, is specifically looking at STEM as a high opportunity zone for closing equity gaps. So we know nationally there's data that shows that equity gaps are worse in STEM than any other discipline cluster. Now, the work that we're doing is specifically looking at closing equity gaps in online classes. And I feel very strongly about online classes, particularly asynchronous online classes, as removing barriers to higher education, letting in, giving access to students who have traditionally just been left out. 
So students who don't have the privilege to know what their schedule is from week to week, students who don't have the privilege to get to campus for all their classes. And so online classes are a really big part of this. And we also know that in particularly community college online classes, equity gaps get worse online. And so we are digging into online undergraduate STEM courses. And we've created a model that is called humanizing and it engages culturally responsive online teaching and eight elements of humanized instruction. And so wow. we bring these two things together into a model that we call humanizing. And the grant project that we're running uses professional development as the catalyst to spread and to adopt humanized online teaching. So when I say um, professional development is equity infrastructure, it's absolutely critical to be engaging faculty in you know, a long-term, meaningful dialogue about what inclusive teaching is, and particularly targeting and centering what does it look like in an asynchronous environment. And you know, I would bet every person listening to this right now, reflect on your experiences with professional development, focusing on inclusion. It's very rare to hear what does that look like asynchronously. And a lot of the practices are much more translatable to something like Zoom because you've got, at least on video, right? There's that aspect of synchronicity. But when you're asynchronous, it's different. It's, that's just the only one I'm going to say. It. It's just different. So investing in professional development as equity infrastructure, we're trying to get institutions to recognize that high quality professional development will make a difference. And so that's been an important part of our project is to really examine like what are the outcomes of this professional development that we've put together. And that's a question we don't ask enough with professional development. You know, usually we jump right to looking at the differences in student data, which is important, but I think we need to start with the actual professional development and what are the faculty experiences. And then we can, you know, start looking at what are the student experiences. And so that's what we've been doing for the past three and a half years. We've been looking at large data sets, actually mostly qualitative and understanding what impact we call it the humanizing online STEM Academy. It's a six week professional development program that faculty go through and what their experiences are like and how it shifts mindsets. Yeah, so investing in that, right? Professional development in my experiences, and I've been supporting faculty for the past 10 plus years. I've been in a faculty support role. And I also support those on campuses who provide the professional development. So I hope that makes sense. So I work at the state level. And so it's really rare for me to talk to someone who provides professional development at one of the 116 community colleges in our system and hear them say, I have a robust team of people with diverse expertise who have lots of time to commit to developing and facilitating professional development. You know, usually it's like on the dime, in addition to all these other things that you're working on, you're supposed to just turn around and produce these really high quality programs. And that doesn't happen. That does not happen. And that is why we have so many one-off webinars. And it's just investing in that and understanding that there is going to be a long-term payoff when professional development is invested is really important. So that's a critical part of our project. 
and we're shifting. We start by paying stipends for faculty to participate in the academy. And then the next step is for those institutions, after they recognize the value of the professional development based on the feedback, the outcomes, they start investing in the stipends themselves. And then our grant just pays for the implementation. So yeah, that's a little bit about what we mean by that. That's incredible. So it sounds like the academy is for these select 116, I think it was, community colleges. What if there were institutions or faculty outside of the grant program or the academy that were interested in this six-week professional development? Is there any way for others to engage in that or even the model itself, the framework? Is it open source or something that we could look at today. Yeah. So first, I just quickly to clarify, I left out that it is an intersegmental project. And while I myself work in the community college system in California, we're also engaging partners from our Cal State University system or CSU system. So it is a two year, four year partnership. And we have researchers from the UC system working with us. But to answer your question, the model of humanizing, we've shared as much as we can possibly share If you go to humanizeol.org, humanizeol.org, you will be able to peruse lots of resources, including an infographic that kind of walks you through the eight elements of humanized online teaching. And if you go on our website under resources and then select toolkit, you can request a toolkit and it will give you links to portfolios created by the participants in the academy showing their actual humanizing showcases of their eight elements. And in the Canvas Commons, we have shared the course. So the academy course is available for adoption. I put an asterisk there and I want to loop back to what I just (laughs) said about how time intensive it is to facilitate. And this academy, it's I have to underscore how much the facilitation derives its success Yeah, because it's facilitated by a human who's modeling humanizing. And so going through the academy and understanding what that feels like and how to do it is really, you know, the best way to set one up for success, but it's incredibly time intensive to facilitate. And so I I do get a little concerned, you know, about these overworked folks like, oh, here's this free thing. Let's do it. Like, so I need to put that little asterisk there (laughs) as I really think through this. And also faculty are learning a range of new technologies. And we all know how hard that is to support asynchronously. So be mindful of, you know, yeah, it's very Um, totally intensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds amazing. And I would encourage anyone to check it out. I will. So that's. What I do, in addition to the podcast, I recently talked to a relative, my grandmother, who said, yeah, Tiffany's full-time job is a podcast. And I thought, oh, silly grandma. (laughs) (laughs) That's an (laughs) add-on. But no, my full-time job is faculty development. And I think in primarily asynchronous online courses. So I think it sounds like a great opportunity. I'll endorse it before I've even seen it. Another area of expertise for you, though, is the liquid syllabus. So this is fascinating concept, and we'd love to hear more about what it is and why folks should pay attention. Yeah, so the liquid syllabus is one of the eight elements of humanized online teaching. And 
first of all, involves many things, but I think one of the biggest shifts moving from a tool that is designed for print, like Microsoft Word or a PDF document, however you create that document, which is, I'm going to say, generally the format that a syllabus is provided to students in. And again, thinking of centering the student experience. And most students are going to look at resources on their phones, maybe not all the time, but some students all the time. We know in, in our system, we serve a lot of students who are smartphone dependent. We know that adults in the US that are smartphone dependent, meaning they don't have access to broadband other than their phone, they're more likely to be black or Latino. And that is really important. And so we want to center mobile friendly content and so the liquid syllabus, instead of using a tool that's designed for eventually printing that doesn't render well on a smartphone, we have faculty experiment with a website tool. And I think that I'll just say whatever tool that is, as long as it's accessible and mobile responsive, then it doesn't matter. But the tool that we have faculty experiment with is Google Sites with a lot of success with it. And so the liquid syllabus renders beautifully on a smartphone and it's sent out to students before the class starts. So if you think about the welcome post, we encourage faculty, if possible, through their institution to get a list of their student emails and email it directly to students. So notifications aren't set up, that doesn't become a barrier. Real quick email with a link to encourage students to check it out. And when a student on their phone taps on that link, it instantly comes up, they're not taken to a login screen, right? Because the login screen can also be a barrier for some students. Maybe it's their first time at the class, they don't know how to get in. We wanna remove as many barriers as possible. And at the top of that screen, there's a quick, warm, friendly video from the instructor welcoming to the class, You know, maybe a one to two minute video and just sharing a little bit about themselves, like a couple of things about themselves. And the rest of the content, we try to get that pre-course content to just be a single page and it's inviting, it's friendly, it's sending cues that say, I'm a partner in your learning, I'm in this with you, as opposed to go figure this out on your own, right? You're going to be learning online, but I'm here to support you. So there's various elements that get included in that pre-course section of the liquid syllabus. And yeah, so that's a little bit about what it is. It's also very visual. It's beautiful. So whenever you click on something and it looks nice, you know, that sends a cue to a person that whoever made this really cares about it. And I think about that a lot when I look at online classes. I was just on an institution's website the other day and it said, check out a sample of one of our online classes. And I clicked on it and yeah, I didn't feel like <laughs> there was much care put into yeah. it. And that really ties into a person's motivation. And, you know, it, it doesn't make you feel like you matter very much. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the questions that we love to ask on the Digital to Learn podcast is about predictions. So based on the work that you're involved in, whether it's humanizing STEM or the liquid syllabus or inclusion, and just some of the things happening around you too, some of the noise in higher ed, what are some predictions that you have about the future of teaching and learning in higher ed? 
Well, we all know that we're in a tough time right now. And when we look at our data, you know, we're losing a lot of students and our public institutions are not serving the students well that need us the most. And so that is really vital. We also know that the interest in online learning has really been peaked as a result of the pandemic. And I believe that the institutions who position online education with their commitment to access and invest in professional development as equity infrastructure will be the institutions that set themselves apart from others. So again, mm -hmm. keeping what students needs are at the center and being aware of the biases that we all bring to the table about in-person versus online and letting students make choices for what is best for them and ensuring that those experiences serve all the students that are coming to the table right through inclusion is really important and i think that one other thing that i'll say and i didn't get into this but you know, who faculty are matters a great deal as well. And institutions that are recognizing the stressors that are placed on faculty, particularly our part-time faculty and our faculty of color, there are privileges that we lean on when we engage with inclusive teaching. And there's a great article by Chavella Pittman and Thomas Tobin um, that came out a year and a half ago or so in the Chronicle about this and those privileges that we lean on come out in the way students react to inclusive teaching. And so that we know that faculty who enter inclusive teaching from the margins are more likely to get pushback from students. And so that has to be brought into this conversation too. So institutions that are aware of all of that messiness and willing to make the leap and invest in it will set themselves apart. And there's a lot of tendency to invest in the shiny new tool and not as much in our people. And I think that that's where I'd like to leave this conversation because I think that will set institutions apart in the future. I wish everyone could hear from you, Michelle. <laughs> I guess the podcast is the first step in that, right? Yeah. But uh, And if you wrote a book, I would read it. <laughs> and if I had time, I would write a book. Trust me, I, I would uh, love to write a book. <laughs> it's funny, in developing the questions for today, I underestimated how intertwined all the topics and the questions truly were. But you can tell that this really is your heart's work, that there's this passion in humanizing, and that's the thread through it all. So it's just so neat, because I know primarily as a part of a grant that you're working on, the academy, but it's also very much a part of you. So just very inspiring to hear from you today. That was very well said. It's not only just wrapped up in all the questions, it's intertwined in everything that I do. So thank you for acknowledging that. You're welcome. And to all of our listeners, there are so many resources from this two-part series for us to link to. So be sure to follow the links to the resources, to the website, to access it all, and to reach out, Michelle, with your interest, because I know you are going to be interested in how you can humanize your courses and the teaching and learning experience. So thanks again, Michelle, for joining us today. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, we'll be back next week on the Digital to Learn podcast.
We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.